Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone, and happy holidays to you as well. I'm still on the road this week. I'm in Richfield, Utah for the first part of this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I'll be flying home on Thursday. And I'll be home for uh, just over two weeks, uh, some downtime, which I'm looking forward to before getting right back out on the road in January. I got a packed schedule in January, so uh, looking forward to some downtime as well. I just want to remind you that this is the last episode of 2021. We'll be taking a three-week break after this episode before returning on January 10th. As always, I want to say thanks for listening in again this week and a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to those of you who've been longtime listeners or have been listening for a while now. I I appreciate all of you. Today is part two of my interview with George Sugai. Uh, George and I dig into some specific topics like positive reinforcement and the importance of tier two strategies in the three-tiered framework. Uh, If you haven't listened to part one from last week as well, I'd really encourage you to do so. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus actually on your assessment journey and the one piece of advice that I think matters the most. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Part two with George Sagai is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with some thoughts about how even making the smallest connection can make a significant difference in changing the dynamic of any situation. Now, I'm not trying to pretend that this is some sort of unique breakthrough and I'm offering you an insight you've never heard before. Far from that. But I had an experience recently that just reminded me that even the smallest connection can make the biggest difference. As I've mentioned on the more recent episodes, I've been on the road for two weeks. This week, I'm in Utah, and this is week three of my road trip, and I'll be home Thursday, which I'm definitely looking forward to. I want to take you back to Monday, December 6th, and my flight from Atlanta to Memphis. Now, the week prior to that, I had been in Texas and in Arizona, and I needed to be in eastern Arkansas the following week, so I decided to spend the weekend in Atlanta. So that way, I'd fly from Phoenix to Atlanta on Friday, and then I'd do the quick flight from Atlanta to Memphis on Monday, December 6th. So while I was in Atlanta, I had this epic sports weekend. Uh, The highlight of it was attending the SEC championship game between Alabama and Georgia. I also went to the Atlanta Falcons game against the Buccaneers. Atlanta Hawks played the Charlotte Hornets. I went to three sporting events in one weekend. It was epic, and those who know me know I love sports. Uh, But the SEC championship game between, at the time, number one Georgia, number three Alabama, was one of the best sporting events I'd ever been to. What I did not know when I bought my ticket was that my seat was smack dab in the middle of the Alabama student section. The game was sold out, so I bought my ticket online, like on one of those brokers like StubHub or SeatGeek or things like that, and they don't tell you where your tickets are. So I find myself smack dab in the middle of the Alabama student section. Anyway, Alabama won, so the students were happy, and the students, of course, all of whom could have been my children, (laughs) they were thrilled about the game. They were probably wondering, like, who's this old guy in our section? Um, So I just kind of stood there. I didn't really go into the game specifically cheering for uh, Alabama. I was actually kind of rooting for Georgia. I don't really care who wins the game, but I was kind of rooting for Georgia. But I certainly put on the facade that I was cheering for Alabama. Anyway, it was a great weekend. Okay, back to Monday, December 6th. So now this is my flight from Atlanta to Memphis. 
So we board the plane and I notice that my seatmate has boarded right in front of me. So I waited patiently as he got his stuff out of his bag, his carry-on, right? He gets his headphones out, iPad, etc. No big deal. I, this happens all the time. You got to wait for people and you got to give people time to get situated. No big deal. But then I notice he's in seat B. He's in the middle seat of the three seats in our row. Still no big deal at that point. So I get situated. I do the same thing. I pull my headphones out, all the stuff. I pull out my antibacterial wipes to clean my seat, my tray table, my seatbelt, all of it. The funny part is that I've been doing that for about four to five years now. And I used to get a lot of funny looks from people when I'd pull out my antibacterial wipes, like I was some sort of germaphobe, which I'm not really. It's just that planes are dirty and planes are gross. And I finally thought, well, if my food happens to hit the tray table, I'd like to know it was clean. So I started using my wipes. Now, no one ever said anything negative. I would just get looks. Uh, the only things people would say to me were more on the positive side. Somebody would look at me and say, oh, that's a good idea. And I'd say, yeah, I know, planes are gross. You want one? And I'd give them one of the antibacterial wipes. But of course, now with COVID, I don't get any funny looks anymore. Anyway, so I sit down, I'm on the aisle, and my seatmate has the middle seat girth going on. Now, what I mean by that is that he was sitting artificially wide. Okay, we are who we are, and that's just how it is. You get on a plane, and people are people, and we just have to, that's the way we are. But when you sit down and you've got your ILS going, ILS, imaginary lat syndrome, where you've got this artificial arm width about you as if your lats are huge, right? So he has definitely staked out his territory, and he's sitting, he's sitting wider than he really is. His legs, his arms, he's got maximum width going on. And honestly, it was uncomfortable, both physically, because I had to kind of lean into the aisle right while he was seated. And we still hadn't even pushed back yet. And it was also kind of socially uncomfortable. It was kind of awkward. Like it was kind of just, he was just sitting in an unnatural position and it was kind of weird. So anyway, it's almost time to push back. We're seated in our seats and the pilot comes on and says, we have to switch planes. He doesn't know why, but dispatch has told him that we have to switch planes. So we, after all getting on the plane, we have to pack up our stuff and, and get off the plane and go to a different gate and get on a new plane. So now as luck and circumstances would have it, and this wasn't intentional on my part, I end up boarding before my seatmate. So we're all in the same seats, new plane, different gate, and he ends up right behind me. We haven't spoken at all at this point. And if I'm being honest, at this point, I'm still a bit salty about his aggressive seating position. Look, Atlanta to Memphis is a short flight, but still an hour of leaning to my left into the aisle was not exactly going to be a good time. So I know he's right behind me. I pull out all of my stuff, you know, the headphones and, you know, my iPad, things like that. But I don't sit down, of course, because I know he has to get into his seat. So I put my stuff on my seat, I step back so he can get in and move out of his way. So as he's pulling his stuff out of his bag, I decided to just engage him a little bit. So I just say to him, here we go again, right? And he responds. He responds by saying, oh, I know, I, I, I can't believe we had to switch planes after everyone was on board. He sits down, I sit down, no middle seat girth. His positioning is completely different. Again, he's a bigger guy. I'm a bigger guy. It's not like we're small. But suddenly, we're both sitting comfortably. Hmm. I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? 
He then asks me if I lived in Memphis. I said, no, I'm just flying into Memphis, have to drive to eastern Arkansas. He tells me what he's doing. We wondered why we had to switch planes, all of that. And then we have another issue on this plane where the pilot says they got to have a crew come out. Nothing earth shattering, but there was just some indicator that they had to get repaired. So we're delayed for just over an hour. So we chatted a bit more. And then he put on his headphones and I put on my headphones and we went about our business. We had this, you know, comfortable flight to Memphis. There was no armrest battle, nothing. I got off the plane and he got off the plane and we went about our merry way. All I said to him was, here we go again. Did that cause the change? Well, look, I can't say for sure. I didn't ask him. But it sure seemed like it. And I'm not a big talker on planes. As someone who does a lot of talking for a living, I often get into my own world on flights. I work, I listen to podcasts or music, or I read, or I write something. You know, I just, I just kind of get into my own world when I get on a plane because I've been talking all day. I feel like all I did was engage him in a little chit-chat which, and it's kind of funny to say this, which kind of humanized us. And now again, I, I'm not saying this is the most epic story ever. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, big deal, Tom. But what I am saying is it reminded me that making even the smallest connection with people provides the opportunity to diffuse most situations. I don't want to overstate this because we know in some situations there is reason to be upset. Right? A person rear-ends your car, you pull over, you get out, you're obviously upset. That person is obviously upset. They come out of their car and imagine the person just says, hey, do you think we'll have a white Christmas this year? And what, all of a sudden you're exchanging cookie recipes and all is diffused? Of course not. That's not what I'm really saying. But even the most intense situations, if we found a way to connect through taking responsibility for our actions or they took responsibility or whatever, I'm sure the situation would at least be less than it would have been had both parties sort of kept the intensity up. But again, I'm not saying it will diffuse every situation, but what I am saying is that it can make a difference most of the time. This is an incredibly stressful time of year anyway, but you add in COVID and all that has surrounded the last almost two years, and you're bound to, in the next couple of weeks, run into situations where you could either escalate or de-escalate the situation. And I say, let's find little ways to connect little ways to diffuse, and to give people the benefit of the doubt. Look, part of me was preparing for an armrest battle to hold my strong position myself and give him the whole nonverbal stance of, hey, I paid for half that armrest. But to what end? What's the purpose of that? What happened made for a much more pleasant flight. He watched his movie. I listened to a podcast. It was all good. No, we didn't exchange contact information. This is not someone who's going to be a lifelong friend, and we absolutely did not exchange cookie recipes, okay? But I just thought to myself in that moment, as we prepared to sit down while we were boarding the second time on the second plane, I thought to myself, you know what? How about we win this next 90 minutes? Again, I never said it to him, but I thought to myself, let's win this next 90 minutes, Let's turn what could be a really awkward, kind of weirdly tense situation into a more pleasant one. And you know what? We did. I'm sure you've had an experience like this too. One simple comment. Here we go again, right? And the entire experience was different.
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, I want to pivot now to some specific, maybe even some controversial issues that always seem to come up when talking about PBIS. And I know last week, George, you mentioned the idea of positive reinforcement and some of the ways that that gets misunderstood. So I want to start with that. And this debate between extrinsic and intrinsic reinforcement or uh, rewards. Um, I know it's a complex topic, and I know there can be a lot of hyperbole out there within the debate. Uh, Many seem to be so fearful of utilizing any external response or reinforcement or reward for pro-social behavior because in their eyes, it might lead to a diminished sense of intrinsic motivation. Um, The use of uh, gotchas, if you will, or the the tickets as people refer to them or something like that, of course, is a very polarizing part of PBIS. So from your perspective, George, what is the healthiest, most balanced mindset educators can have when it comes to this idea of extrinsic versus intrinsic, that whole debate around motivation? Right. So let me back up and just say, you know, uh, thanks for inviting me back for part two. Uh, I guess I did okay on part one. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. It also gives me, it also gives me a chance to, you know, correct anything I might have misstatement, mistake about on the previous uh, part one. Yeah. So thanks for having me yeah. back again. Um, Great question. And again, I think I mentioned some of this generally in, in trying to respond to this intrinsic versus extrinsic. I'm going to, as I like to do, I like to speak broadly and then kind of narrow down a little bit. I think it's really important to ask the question about what is the outcome we want to achieve? Or what is the benefit we want the student to experience? Um, what is it that we want kids to be able to learn, to be able to do, and so forth? I'm all about kids becoming independent thinkers. I'm all about kids becoming independent in their decision-making and how they navigate their environments. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I think we can agree, you know, that that's an important set of outcomes for, for people to be good thinkers and so forth. I think where we might have some disagreement or some rough edges, if you will, is how we get there, you know, and what that might look like and the assumptions we make about how we get there. Because I think assumptions is an important descriptor because the extrinsic, uh, intrinsic discussion or debate, if you will, controversy, whatever you want to call that, is about assumptions. It's about things we assume are important or not important or dangerous or safe or what have you. Um, so let me start out by reiterating that I come from this behavioral sciences perspective. and. Uh, I think it's really important that teaching and learning be thought about in the context of the environment in which that is occurring. And that each individual who comes to that setting comes with a learning history, comes with a biological makeup, comes with a sort of set of physical characteristics and so forth. Those are sort of givens. What goes on inside the person is really hard for me because it's hard to see. So we have to trust what the person says and what the person does to be able to understand what's going on inside the person. So I'm looking at you, Tom, and I'm making these assumptions about what you're thinking based on how you're looking at me and how you're nodding and so forth and so on. And whether or not there's any validity to those things, I have to depend upon what you tell me you say you're thinking and what, you know, and so forth and so on. I think when I think about kids, I think the same thing has to be put in place. You know, I think we can infer what they're thinking. We can infer how they're, how they're navigating their, you know, internal lives and so forth. 
but we have to trust what they're saying and we have to trust what they do as a, as a window to that internal world. And so I really kind of depend upon what kids say and what they do as being my first line of action. If Tom swears at me, I'm going to infer something about what he's thinking, but I'm also going to say, how should I respond to that? And maybe what should Tom say instead? So to, to kind of get specific, but probably dance around the answer is, I'm not sure the intrinsic extrinsic discussion does help me much in understanding what I'm gonna do with Tom. You know, I'm gonna to ask Tom, I'm gonna to interview him, I'm gonna watch him, I'm gonna assess what he does and what he doesn't do. And I'm gonna work with Tom and his family and his, and his peers to develop the best environment possible so he can be successful. To me, the best indicator of intrinsic motivation success is when Tom is a good self-manager. He can make good decisions based on what on information he has available. He interacts favorably, positively, respectably with others, kids and adults. He takes, makes good, healthy decisions that are safe for himself. Um, he manages his learning environment so that he can learn and, and promote his future learning. Um, he knows how to um, verbally communicate his feelings in ways that are understandable to others. And he makes, does actions that reflect good, good strategies for dealing with those emotions. So, you know, I, there's no way that I'm gonna deny that emotions ex don't exist because I know they exist. I know I'm gonna, there's no way I'm gonna deny that you and I think and so forth. But what I'm gonna really depend upon is what you say and what you do to reflect those feelings and what you're thinking. Absolutely the same thing is true of kids. And there's no way we're gonna ask kids to become automatons, to do, be comp compliant without questioning because questioning is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, being a responsible learner is questioning, you know, what you do and what you see other people doing, but questioning it in a way that is pro-social and is not harmful to others. So I think, you know, I, I think there's more agreement than disagreement about the extrinsic intrinsic. I think there's disagreement on some of the discussions on the fringe, or as you said, some of the hyperbole that's out there right. and that we sometimes, uh, come at it from counter theoretical models, which sometimes gets in the way. Yeah. I guess the question really centers on the idea of evidence and, and does the evidence support some of the assertions that uh, external reinforcement, external, you know, reward, if you will, diminishes intrinsic motivation. I, I you know, I, I always find it interesting. And I think I'm remembering an article by John Mag from back in the early 2000s, where he talked about you know, when it comes to positive reinforcement, people worry that external will diminish intrinsic. And yet when it comes to consequences for antisocial behavior or misbehavior in schools, people don't seem to have a problem with external consequences diminishing intrinsic motivation. I think there was something to that effect of, of, of that idea. Absolutely right. So where does the research land on that issue around? Because I yes. think there's a lot of conversation out there. There's a lot of assertions made in the public space. But what does the research tell us about the connection between external and intrinsic motivation? Right. There have been a number of what are called meta-analyses done where you collect all the research around a specific topic and figure out what the general consensus is of that literature. And in general, those meta-analyses say that it's very little evidence to suggest that providing external feedback and so forth and so on can cause damage to quote intrinsic motivation, whatever that might be. Right. 
So there's that question, of course, again. Mm -hmm. However, there are some theorists who may not, whose theoretical models uh, challenge that interpretation of those meta-analyses. Okay. So that's out there. It's not a large population of, of researchers, but there's a theoretic, there's some theorists out there who say that meta-analysis interpretation is wrong, mm -hmm. just based on their theoretical model. But the majority of that empirical research suggests that you can't damage intrinsic motivation by providing external feedback. It does provide some warnings, however, mm -hmm. that says that if the only thing you do and the only thing you assume is that giving a kid a tangible is going to change his or her behaviors, we're in trouble. Right. Because th that is not what that literature says. The literature says that using tangibles as a vehicle for providing feedback is a good way of helping kids learn, helping kids navigate their environments. Mm -hmm. Couple comments about the PBIS world. Yes, indeed, we use tangibles sometimes to build school-wide classroom systems to provide feedback to kids. In the beginning of PBIS, we tried not to do that because we didn't want tangibles to become the tools for building school-wide systems. However, this always gets me in trouble, but <laughs> however, what we found is the adults we're not very good about providing feedback on a regular continuous basis. We'd say, you know what, all we want you to do is give kids feedback about what they're doing right. Verbal feedback, praise statements, smiles, eye contact, whatever. You know, right? give them some social positives and let them know that you appreciate them for what they're doing. The adults were terrible mm -hmm. at doing that yeah. in general. Not all adults, but many. Not the, not anybody listening or watching this, this podcast, <laughs> but all the other. Nice save, George. What we, what many of our teams, yeah. our teams came up with the idea that we need to give reminders to the staff members. Mm -hmm. So they came up with one of the initial um, positives were gotchas, yeah. you know, um, and high fives from Fern Ridge, as you know, yeah. and the uh, pro tickets. Those came, were invented by teams who said, let's give these to the adults to hold, to remind them <laughs> to give out positives to kids. Yeah. But they always warned that if you give a kid a gotcha, it has to be accompanied by a verbal praise statement and an honest social positive expression. Right. Nice job, Tom, I appreciate so much. You know, it can't be just give it out and walk away. And you have to label what they did. Nice job, Tom. I really appreciate the way you walked away mm -hmm. from that difficult situation. I just want to give you this good citizen ticket because you were being a good citizen. Right. It's that verbal social contact that matters. Yeah. Those tokens carry no value except what you give when you provide the, when you that you uh, provide when you give the ticket. They're their tool. That's yeah. all they are. Yeah. They're, they're tickets to get access to something else. I think that would surprise some people to learn that the uh, tickets, tokens, gotchas, et cetera, were actually in, invented by the teachers, by the teams that decided they need to, to remind the adults. That was a massive breakthrough for me as well, George, in the early days was understanding that that was all designed to make sure that adults were regular and predictable with their feedback for on-task pro-social behavior and that the adults were not, we weren't, we honestly are not very good at that. 
And, and it's also interesting in this conversation, I think you mentioned this last week about feedback in sort of the world that I work in now in assessment and grading. We talk a lot about how important descriptive feedback is in terms of advancing academic learning, which by definition would be an external. And it's interesting that externally sourced academic feedback doesn't seem to bring the same uh, heaviness uh, in terms of diminishing intrinsic motivation. If we subscribe to the theory external diminishes intrinsic, wouldn't we worry that teacher-based fee or teacher-centered feedback on academic learning would diminish the student's intrinsic motivation to keep learning? Uh, we never talk about that. And so it, it seems to be this very narrow piece around behavior, which does cut, carry with it some of those, um, you know, some of that baggage that we talked about last week in terms of when it's a behavioral-based thing. You talked about how when it's academic, we teach. When it's behavioral, we consequence. Um, it, it is an interesting uh, conversation to have in terms of those those different ideas. Yeah, and if I could just interrupt sure, for a second, yeah. I really do think I think it's important to understand that some of the controversy is associated with, as I mentioned last time at the end of the podcast, a poor implementation. Mm -hmm. So we see teachers going around giving out a thing, but not saying anything. We see and the kids saying, well, "What's that for?" Right. Mm -hmm. And we, we have situations where a teacher will say, if you don't do this, I won't give you. Right. You know, those are misrules on how to use a, a token. Yeah. You know, and so those misrules create these uh, criticisms of the use of a token. Right. I also want to mention that if you were to go back and look at the literature on token economies mm -hmm. in the behavioral literature, there's an incredible evidence base out there for the successful use and impact of tokens for improving social environments, improving academic skills, improving social interactions, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Not just for kids with disabilities, but all kids. We, but those are examples of it being used the right way as opposed to being used inappropriately. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I like to do whenever I hear a myth, which sometimes you, well, not sometimes, but you've been presenting to me, right. is go back and find out what's the source of that myth. Well, it's oftentimes a misapplication, right. you know, of a, of, a, of, of a given procedure or practice or what have you, mm -hmm. because you can't blame the practice if we fail to do it the correct way, you know? And frankly, it's my fault for not having taught the user of the token to use it the right way. Right. It's my fault for not having the teams and coaches in the schools remind the staff to do it the right way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's pretty fascinating kind of thing to see. One other thing I'd, I'd really like the listeners or viewers to do is to ask a kid, you know, why they receive a token. Mm -hmm. And if a kid says, Oh, that's just the teacher's way of telling me I did something the right way. Then I think I'm I'm pretty okay with that. If the kid says the kid the teacher gave me this so I will do it again in the future, then I'm in trouble mm -hmm. because the kid's working for the token and the teacher is reinforcing that idea. Right. The kids will tell us. Most secondary kids are going to say, "Oh, that's the teacher's gimmick. Yeah. They're just trying to." Yeah, I'm okay with that as long as they understand that it's the teacher trying to give feedback for being more respectful, you know, in, with each other. So I think it's kids can be the one of the best mm -hmm. thermometers for telling us whether or not something's being used appropriately, whether or not it needs to continue. You know, one of the misrules is using it too long. You can, you can stop 
after a while. You don't need to keep giving out these tokens right. because the kids are going to have a relationship with you that's built around positives. Right. I think those implementation errors are really important to pay attention to. You know, the character, the caricature of, of students walking down the right side of the hallway with their hands out waiting for their tokens and tickets. Those implementation errors really do, and they should be criticized. They really should. They should be critiqued, and, and we should take them, call them, you know, take them to task on on that type of, uh, you know, it 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 just feels as if you're not paying attention to the details in in your implementation plan, and that's not the idea's fault. That's that's our fault for not implementing the right way. And you're, I think, you're absolutely right, right. also about secondary schools. Because it really is about the reinforcement. It's really about not the, the reward or the tangible. It's really about the social interaction between the adult and the feedback that they that they are providing to the student. And as you said last week, and you've said again today, this idea that students become self-managers, they become self-regulatory, that they are able to, to go long stretches without that adult interaction. Is, is that not what defines a tier one student, is that they can go long stretches without that kind of interaction from an adult and they still act in a pro-social way. That's, that's how right. Absolutely. It. Yeah. You know, a successful quote tier one kid is, is, excuse me, that's, that's a wrong way to say yeah. it. A kid who has been, has experienced successful tier one practices is a kid who can self-reinforce, if you will, mm -hmm. can say to myself, you know what, I got out of that situation the right way. You know, I got out uh, and my friend was no longer embarrassed. A person who can identify and makes positive self-statements, cool. A kid who can walk down the hallway and say, hey, thank you very much for helping me. And has, you know, it's actually, actually kind of a, helping another kid do it the right way. Mm -hmm. Those are all, to me, the outcome of having experiences between the adult and the kid, right. you know. I don't think there's such a thing as a, as a kid or an individual who can go long, long, long periods of time without reinforcement. Right. I think there are kids who have substitute other ways of giving themselves feedback about what they've been doing or to arrange their environment to get feedback for success. Right. You know, it's like learning to play an instrument. <clears throat> when you play the right chord and it sounds right, you're getting feedback, mm -hmm. you know, about having done it the right way. And you're going to keep doing it that way. You know, stop doing that incorrect you know, hand position. It's about um, identifying, you know, in your self or in your environment, what's going on, mm -hmm. you know, and what's happening. So the big message here, listeners, is if you are in a school that's implementing PBIS systems and supports and you are engaged in regular reinforcement using any kind of token, re-examine your system and make sure that uh, we're implementing the right way. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about school discipline now, because as we know, um, as much as we teach students uh, pro-social behaviors, we teach them pro-social skills, there are always those students who break the rules and end up in the office or end up being suspended or even some kind of, you know, other consequences for their action. And we also know, and I actually heard you reiterate this on a, a C-SPAN video that I watched when you were speaking at the White House, um, that, that both students who require special services and students of color are disproportionately disciplined at much higher rates. So I guess my question really is twofold. First, how do we prevent that kind of bias in terms of our school-wide discipline systems? How do we prevent that type of bias from entering our school-wide discipline procedures, if you will? And two, how do we ensure a structured, disciplined learning environment without relying on punitive measures? I know that's a question a lot of folks have. So if not consequences, if not those punitive measures, how do we structure that? 
Right. <clears throat> so first of all, I, you know, I think it's really important that we have a school-wide system in place that helps people understand what's okay and what's not okay, right? We have rules mm -hmm. about what's okay, not okay. And I think what we've gotten in a bad habit of doing is focusing on the misrules, the wrong things people do, as opposed to saying what are the right things we should be doing. Mm -hmm. It's school-wide discipline. So we say no fights, right? And you're right, fights are unacceptable, inappropriate, especially physical fights, especially when people get hurt. <clears throat> we might argue that, you know, at the school-wide level, we want to talk about asking, well, what can we do to solve problems more responsibly? What can we do to express our emotions more appropriately? We might want to build in some positive counter alternative rules that create a balance mm -hmm. between the negatives and the positives. You know, um, I think it's important to, that we have systems in place that tell, remind kids and adults what they should and shouldn't do. But we need to balance that out with what are those more pro-social rules that have the same function, if you will, the same level of priority. <clears throat> we have become a culture in which punishment is our primary disciplinary policy. And that has gotten us in trouble because it focuses all our attention on what people do incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Now there's a lot of baggage attached to that statement, meaning that when you have communities, cultures, environments, where you have kids coming in with a variety of learning environments, variety of cultural experiences, a variety of street behaviors, if you will, that are counter to those rules that are established, both inferred as well as more explicit, we tend to up the ante on the consequences to try to get kids to comply. Mm -hmm. The misrule there, I think, is we fail to up the ante on the positives that have to occur. So if I knew that a given culture is one where they come in using inappropriate language as the primary response to being bullied, I'm gonna to try to cut that off at the pass early. Acknowledge that yes, on the street, you might use profanity when you are bullied. In school, here's how we respond. And I might try to tier two-ishly increase the instruction for that particular skill. So it's understanding what kids come to the school with and understanding how much of a habit that experience has been kind of dictates what my school-wide instruction has to be. I think we have to up the ante on tier two, tier three positives as opposed to upping the ante on tier two, tier three negatives for kids who come in with different learning experiences. Mm -hmm. I also want to acknowledge that <clears throat> The adults have to come to grips individually with some of their, their learning experience is. Because I know that, for example, in certain cultures, um, kids are taught, this is how we deal with bad behavior in our homes. Mm -hmm. It's isolation, it's physical punishment, it's whatever those things are. And as a teacher, as a school administrator, I might carry that learning history with me. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad for a given culture. What I am saying, though, is that for a large community like a school or classroom, we want to promote more positive kind of environments because those environments can be more pro supportive of our academic and our kind of social missions. But it's important to understand what our, our individual learning histories are 
and how that might prejudice our decisions on what we do. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why PBS has been so focused on team-based implementations so that we have a community of people making decisions about what's being implemented. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of our struggles has always been, well, what happens when a school principal, what happens when Mr. Sh- Shimmer, the, the principal, you know, has a perspective that punishment is his pri- or her primary tool. Then we have a bigger bigger uh, challenge in front of us with respect to district-wide policies and implementation. Um, I just realized, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. But... <laughs> yeah, finish your thought. <laughs> All right, but um, school discipline has become a very difficult thing to change because the habit is to increase the focus on punishment. I think the thing we got to promote is understanding where kids are coming from, especially cultures of kids. Right. And up in the ante on the pro-social side, as a way of responding. Yeah. I would love, as you, um, I know you've used yourself, a school that has office discipline referrals as one tool, but also has a positive discipline referral as a second tool. Right. And giving the staff the challenge of giving out more positive discipline referrals than negative yeah. ones to change the culture of the school discipline system. Yeah, that is uh, certainly something, I, you know, in schools I've worked in for sure, uh, we've we've tried to promote. It's a challenge, though, because we know that we just have a disproportionate amount of attention and response to negative behaviors. We tend to respond more intensely. We tend to respond more acutely. We, we tend to respond overall more frequently to negative behaviors. So it really does take that that work and that effort. I want to bring you back to part of the question, which was about culture. I'm thinking about and 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 help maybe help us navigate through this, in you know in our current context. Thinking about being uh, racially equitable, thinking about culturally uh, being culturally responsive. When we talk about the expectations within a school, we know that one of the foundations is three to five positively stated expectations and those behavioral examples that help teach students what those things look like. How do we start to make sure that? how we define appropriate pro-social behavior isn't just narrowly defined through a sort of white Eurocentric lens. How do we make sure that there is a culturally, the term I often use is culturally expansive and inclusive idea that that what is appropriate behavior for our school is culturally inclusive. How do we go about that work? Right. The general answer is it's really going to become important for the school community as a whole. That means families, community members, possibly staff, kids, et cetera, that the school community as a whole participate in the development of those expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, because without the voice of students, without the voice of families, without the voice of community, we're in trouble, right? Now, what does that look like? That means, and I'll use the British Columbia example that I always remember of having some of the uh, First Nations elders participating with the teams and developing and I'm going to be very explicit about this, using behavioral examples Mm -hmm. that are representative of the First Nations community. So, for example, we might have three general rules about respect yourself, others, and property, about respect, responsibility, safety. Those are pretty general, mostly acceptable across multiple cultures. But what respect looks like in a given culture Mm -hmm. and the examples of what it looks like might vary. And I think those examples have to be generated by students, family, community members, and staff members collectively, and a set of agreements that are made about, yes, we all agree that respect in the hallway is walking to the right, 
but we're not going to focus on eye contact because eye contact culturally can become offensive to some. Right. But we're going to focus on walking to the right, and we're going to focus on you know whatever hands to self because that's okay. Uh, we're not going to use high fives because physical contact in some cultures is not appropriate. So whatever. Right. I think it's important for the specific behavioral examples be reflective of the I'll use my words, behaviors or skills or, or whatever mm-hmm. of the community and that they have to become involved. We get in trouble when just the team by themselves develop. Now, in all honesty, some of the teams are pretty good about being sensitive to what their cultures are about, mm-hmm. but it becomes much more um, real if there are actually members of those communities, students in particular, family members and community members participating, mm-hmm. maybe not in the team meetings, but in some of the follow-ups around generating, as you know, the teaching matrix or right. one of those behavioral examples. Right. But the examples is the key. Mm-hmm. The examples have to reflect the learning histories of the people who are participating. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that certainly creates an inclusive environment right from the start. It also right. sends the message when you have, you know, indigenous elders, if you have community members, if you have uh, the various cultures that are represented in the school participating in the process from the beginning, there is a kind of sponsorship to those expectations as well that occurs by simply the, the presence and the meaningful contribution there. Yeah, I, right. I want to pull back the lens a little bit to social emotional learning because I, you know, this is another area that I find curious where there seems to be this tension. Um, and again, sometimes it's in cyberspace, it's on social media, et cetera, and, and our need to create dichotomy. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the statements I sometimes hear from people, it's like, oh, no, no, we, we do SEL, we don't do PBIS. Um, so my question to you, George, is what, what is your view of the relationship between the implementation of school-wide PBS supports, PBIS supports and systems and the development of social-emotional competencies? What, what is your view of that relationship? Yeah, I think there. I think there's a lot of opportunity for symbiotic stuff going on between the two. Mm-hmm. I don't see them as being either or. I don't see them as being counter. I do find some of the assumptions behind PBIS and SELs being somewhat in conflict, especially around as we just discussed around the use of tangible right. and so forth. Right. There are some things that are counter to the theory, the conceptual framework of the two systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say that the PBIS Center has done a phenomenal job of developing um, examples as well as guidelines for how to merge things like SEL, Mm -hmm. things like merging character education with PBIS, Mm -hmm. things like uh, merging bully-proofing programs and trauma-informed strategies with PBIS. Mm -hmm. I don't think they are counter or counter-therapeutic or counter-productive. I think they can be easily merged together. There does have to be a little bit of give, I think, on some of the basic premises. I mean, this notion, and one of my my perspectives is you got to teach social skills directly, mm-hmm. you know, as like you would teach reading. And I think the um, members, promote pr- promoters of SEL may not have that strong of, of a perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm a strong believer that you need to have external feedback on how kids are doing socially. Mm-hmm. That may not be a strong proponent of SEL communities. Mm-hmm. However, if you go to many of the SEL um, sites and you look up the research base for them, you'll find a number of the practices as being the same practices that are being promoted Uh within the PBIS collection of practices. I find that one of the best ways to show the integration is to start broad, meaning that 
PBIS is a framework. It has some ways of organizing what we do. What we do for everybody, what we do for some, what we do for a few. Let's take our SEL perspectives, our outcomes and our practices and organize them all some few. Let's use our teams as a way to build those structures and put them in place. Mm -hmm. Let's use our teaching matrix where we have respect, which we all agree upon as being important and tweak the examples so that it reflects both SEL as well, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think there's more room for mergers than there are for, okay, fine. Let's continue to collect our data on what kids are doing in the hallway and our discipline referrals. But yes, let's also look at kids surveys and their voice in how they're experiencing this because their voices reflect what they're experiencing. Lots of room for overlap. Mm -hmm. I think we spend way too much trying to separate the two rather than trying to merge the two. I do think you have to acknowledge that there are certain things that are going to be much more, people are going to be much more tenacious about hanging on to. Right. And those are things that we, the teams are just going to have to deal with. Just, Excuse me. I just kicked my computer. <laughs> That's all good, George. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely see the overlap myself. And I think like you, as you say, and listeners would be familiar with me, you know, ranting many times about this, for whatever reason, we have this need to create dichotomies and, and try to create contradiction. And I don't know if that's just performative or what it is, but you know, for me, I see so much overlap. I think that the goal of, of any PBIS system is to develop independent thinkers to help students become more self-regulatory, both academically and behaviorally. And so that's where the SEL competencies come in. And sometimes, you know, I've read some recent research that said it's important for both sides to really acknowledge the other side that it might be simple in an environment where you have low rates of antisocial behavior. It might be easier to say, well, we just start with SEL competencies, but a school that is trying to navigate through high rates of antisocial behaviors and high rates of office discipline referrals, they may not be in a place where they can start with those SEL competencies. They need to sort of, if for lack of a better word, they need to correct the context before forging ahead with that. So it's an interesting overlap in terms of what does the, it goes back to something you've said last week and this week, which is context and looking at the context and making sure that context matters. Correct. I'd, and the only thing I'd add to that is, say, and you sort of alluded to it already, is that I think it's important to kind of pay attention to what the, whether the students are benefiting from our what we're doing. Right. You know, I think if 80% of the kids are doing fine with SEL, PBIS, SEL, whatever, cool, go for it, yeah. right? And you can document that impact, go for it. But if you have kids who are actually struggling with trying to manage their own behaviors, with understanding how to manage their anger the right way mm-hmm. and the SEL or whatever curriculum is not being successful in getting there. It may be a time to start staying. We probably need to intensify the supports we're providing. Mm-hmm. And that's where tier two and tier three comes right. in. But if you can't get, if you can't get to 80%, I'd argue that, you know, we probably got to step back and take a look at what we're doing. Right. Yeah. Consider context and certainly look for the overlap as opposed to constantly creating these divisions. I just, I just find it, right. as, you know, as each year that I move through my career, I just finding myself more and more looking for similarities, overlap, and 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 really trying to as forcefully as I can, you know, implore people to stop looking for these divisions and stop looking for these silos. I want to shift a little bit to tier two now because I have found and uh, I still continue to hear this idea that educators. I think you alluded to this last week. This idea that we want to jump from tier one to tier three. 
Um, and I find sometimes that, um, you know, the idea that if the school-wide approach, classroom approach is not effective, then they need an individualized plan. And I often find in some ways that tier two may be the key to an effective and efficient school-wide implementation um, of a three-tiered framework or three-tiered approach to behavioral and, and, and academic support. Would you subscribe to that in many ways? The tier two is kind of a linchpin, if you will, that that schools can, if they're successful at tier two, that they can really be a breakthrough for them in terms of a school-wide model? Yeah, and I think you've alluded to it as well. I, th I think people jump too quickly from tier one to tier three with respect to the kind of decisions they make. Mm -hmm. um, I, wanna, I wanna kind of reinforce something I mentioned earlier in the part one, that is, I think it's really important to think about this as being a continuum. Right right that it's what varies along that continuum is frequency intensity duration of an intervention um a single intervention could actually be reflected in all three tiers it's the intensity of it it's frequency and so forth right. uh, i can think of a of a school that had kids an alternative school mm -hmm. that had kids with severe behavioral difficulties all kids had their own behavioral contracts all kids had a self-management card mm -hmm. that was similar. Tier one for all of those kids was what we might call tier three in a public school, mm. right? right? So it, it's, it, and what was happening at tier three in that school was very intensive, highly therapeutic, very specialized, externally provided services. So, you know, tier three would probably never happen inside a, a typical community school, you know, and so forth and so on. Right. So I think it's pretty important to kind of keep in mind that it is a continuum as we kind of address this. Yeah. Second thing I think you mentioned is that I really like tier two because tier two is such an efficient way of thinking about how we address kids who need more than tier one. Mm -hmm. It means that we need to tweak the intensity of what we're doing at tier one for a few kids who aren't quite getting it. So if I think about the reading analogy, we have kids, we got a tier one basal curriculum where all, all 30 kids are in the same curriculum. And there is Tom, George, and you know Jane. They're not getting it. So what do I do? I say, you know what? Three of you, come over here. We're gonna have a little bit of extra practice. We're gonna do a little bit more practice on what we just did with the whole class. Guess what? That's tier two. <laughs> right oh tom you got it now great you don't need to come tomorrow stick with tier one we'll keep track of you if you want to join us you may you know you can go up and down based on your performance inside that group so kid response and using tier one as the basis for tier two very efficient very effective mm -hmm. i mentioned last part one last week yeah. whatever it was yeah. um that um, catching kids at the door is a great tier one intervention, but you can increase the intensity of what you do with a given kid or group of kids at the door as a way, as again, adding in tier two. And tier two could be on the spot. You could say, oh my gosh, Tom, you look a little upset to me. You can do it right there. Right. It doesn't have to be a planned program. Right. One last note. I know, you know, we've used as an example, although it's become a misrule that it is the only thing, but as an example of tier two is check and check out. Right. Now check and check out is a good example of a strategy that's been tested as a tier two strategy. Mm -hmm. 
but it could be used as tier one and it could be used as tier three. For example, we have 10 kids. They are on check in, check out in a classroom of 30 or two classrooms of 40 or whatever. 10 kids all doing check in, check out. Every hour they get a check in, check, you know, Mm -hmm. I won't go through how it works, but you know how it works. But basically they're getting monitored every hour and giving feedback. Turns out that Tom is doing okay with it. So now he only gets checked in twice a day. So we've reduced the intensity of check in, check out for Tom. In fact, we've taken a kid who's not in check in, check out, and we've peer monitored him with Tom so he can get a little extra help from a peer Mm -hmm. in the classroom. And then there's George over here. Oh my gosh, an hourly check in is not good enough. He needs to have every 15 minutes. And he needs to have a verbal prompt about what he should be doing. Mm-hmm. So I've moved up the intensity of tier t- of check and check out, which now looks a little bit like tier three for George. Right. So check and check out has a lot of versatility to it because you can move it up and down based on kid performance. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to reiterate that, reiterate, iterate, say again, <laughs> that check and check out is just an example. There are many other interventions that have the characteristics of, of tier two, which is group-based, yeah. which is high frequency and so forth and right, so on. Right. So I think that it's a it's such an important message because I think so often we say, well, tier two interventions are different. They're different things we do with students. And sometimes they can be, but I think if, if people look more to the increasing of frequency, the increasing of intensity, you know, it's almost more of the same, isn't it? It's more of what we're doing in a more targeted setting in a more targeted group uh, that can help open up people's ideas that, oh, do I need a separate set of strategies? Well, not really. It's increasing the frequency with which you interact or increasing the frequency of right. feedback, the intensity and, and all of that as we go through. So yeah, I have always found that tier two was, again, speaking, I, I've used this language throughout our two parts, the idea of a breakthrough. I know that for me, when I really came to understand what tier two is about, I started to realize that that is one of the keys to making sure that we had the time, the 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 personnel, the, the the ability to support students who need tier three intervention and, and present us with, you know, in those different various settings. Otherwise, we're almost escalating students into a situation that's not sustainable uh, with, with that. So for me, tier two is definitely a, a, a great place to really make sure we get it right uh, from an implementation perspective. Okay, as we finish up today with part two, George, I want to pull back the lens a little bit, do a little bit of reflection on the over the course of your career, um, and specifically with when it comes to PBIS uh, and the implementation of the work of the center. And I'm gonna I want to tackle this in two parts, and it's and this may come back to responses that you've already had, and that and that's fine if it does. But the first part is uh, looking at it from a perspective of of the last sort of 25 to 30 years or so, when you when we sit here today in 2021 and you look back over the course of your career, is there anything that surprises you um, in terms of, you know, maybe a disappointment? We're going to get to the positives, but let's talk about when you reflect on the last 25 to 30 years, is there is there an aspect of behavioral support where you feel like, you know, we didn't make as much progress as I thought we would have made when, I, when you looked ahead, you know, from the early 1990s and thought, you know, for sure by 2021, this would be reconciled or this would be the norm or something like that. Is there any aspect of, of uh, the last sort of 25 to 30 years in terms of the implementation of PBIS that, that you're somewhat disappointed with? Yeah, 
I think there's two, and I mentioned one of them last time, mm -hmm. and that is, and I'll state it in a positive way, <laughs> but it, you know, we look at our data over the last, every year we take a look at how many schools are, quote, implementing PBIS. Mm -hmm. You know, and the last count was about 26,000 schools that have been touched by the PBIS framework in some way or some fashion, right. which is great. But what, we've, what we find is that, and I'm gonna get the number probably not as accurate, so I'll just give a general figure, but it's pretty close. About of those 26,000 schools, 60% of them or so are actually checking to see if they're implementing PBIS with fidelity. Mm -hmm. So I'll say it again, about 60% of the schools are actually checking to see if they're implementing tier one with fidelity. Yeah. Of that 60%, about 40% are implementing with fidelity. So that's a good thing, right? 40% and 60%. 40% are doing it with fidelity, 60% are checking right. for fidelity. Right. But there's a whole bunch of schools that aren't checking for fidelity. Right. And there's a whole bunch of schools that are not implementing with fidelity. Now, optimistically, I'm saying, oh my, oh my gosh, they realize they're not implementing with fidelity, so they're gonna change. But there's that other group of schools that aren't even checking to see if they're implementing with fidelity. Mm -hmm. So the good thing is, yeah, they're doing it. The sad thing is they're not checking to see if they're implementing with fidelity. Right. That's like saying, gee, I got my flu shot today, but I didn't check to see whether or not, <laughs> you know, it was the right flu shot, whether or not it was the right timing. I didn't, you know, all that fidelity stuff becomes right. questionable. Right. We didn't get a second opinion, if you will. Right. You know, I worry about that. My, some of my friends say from a large scale perspective, 26,000 schools is pretty cool and getting 40% implementing with fidelity is pretty cool at that scale. Right. But I'm not satisfied. I'd much rather see 80, 15, five right, right. for our schools. Right, right. The second thing that I struggle with is that the fidelity of implementation goes down dramatically as you move up to tier two and tier three. Mm -hmm. So from 40 to something like, I don't know, 20 down to, you know, it drops, the fidelity of implementation drops. Mm -hmm not only the checking of it, but the actual fidelity. I understand that it's difficult to implement tier three strategies. I understand that it's difficult um, to work with kids with severe behavior problems and so forth and so on. But what it tells me is that maybe we're not doing tier one very well. What it tells me is maybe we're not implementing or checking our tier three strategies very well. It also tells me maybe we're not doing as individualized and as prescriptive as we should be, right. you know, and so forth. So a lot of questions pop up. Yeah. So if there's anything that I would have done differently when we started 30 years ago would be to emphasize fidelity implementation across all three tiers more aggressively yeah. to make it a requirement of PBIS as opposed to a highly recommended. Right. And to be very purposeful about checking and making sure that you follow. Absolutely. Okay, let's finish Absolutely. up with the other side. What has you opti feeling optimistic? What has you pleasantly surprised as you looked ahead? What did you underestimate and are now pleasantly surprised by in terms of of, of the work uh, as we finish up here? I, I love it when people understand that PBIS is a logic and they can apply it to a variety of different contexts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, when... Um, we experienced some pretty significant school violence um, shootings and so forth. When people said, 
you know, we have to bring our whole community together. What can we do to make sure everybody is being supported? Mm -hmm. Tier one. What can we do for those people who are high risk? I mean, excuse me, at risk of having trouble making the transition back to school. Tier two. Mm -hmm. What can we do for those kids who are high, high risk, uh, had some direct experiences with the school violence, but we're going to need something much more intense. And then they turned around and said, what can we do for all our staff when they come back? You know, and what can we do for some staff who are having trouble kind of wrapping their head around the idea of coming back? And what can we do for those staff who actually experience some of that school violence themselves personally mm -hmm. and are having trouble even stepping back on the school grounds? Um, I love it when, um, when we were starting to come back to school after the, um, pandemic was sort of at its height and everyone was saying you know we come back to school get back to normal and so forth i love it when schools were saying we used our pbis team to help build a successful transition back to school right. we talked about respect responsibility safety and added into our teaching matrix a little piece around wearing face masks around making sure that we kept our distance making sure that you know whatever that they built in the structures that were being used for PBIS as a way to deal with their transition back to school. How they said, we have some kids who are gonna come back to school who actually experience death in their families. Mm -hmm. We might need to reach out to them before they come to school to help them make the transition to school as opposed to waiting for them to come to school and act out their you know, trauma when they come to school. I loved it when I saw those kinds of applications of the PBIS guiding principles back to some of those issues. Mm -hmm. I look forward to the PBIS schools that are doing this stuff well, using that PBIS thinking mm -hmm. as a way and the framework features as a way of moving, using their data for decision making, um, making sure they shorten the line between the decision they make in the intervention and the student benefit, mm -hmm. making sure, sure student benefit is always at the at the forefront of decision-making, making sure they use their teams, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, when those kinds of things happen, it, it makes me feel good about being retired because something's <laughs> is happening. Well, we want you to feel good in retirement, George, that's for sure. Um, okay, one last question as we finish up today, and it's a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and it's simply a question about success. And uh, the question is simple, and it's this. If a random person were to stop you on the street, George, and ask you, What's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Um, for PBIS, and I would just say that in general. one of the things that is, yeah, one of the things, oh, let me start with that PBIS okay. one just because that's sure. on my mind right now. And that is, <laughs> I think, I think, and I didn't kind of emphasize this enough and I should, should have done it in part one and part two. And that is, I, I really do appreciate you, Tom, having me on, on this podcast. And I think, um, and I really appreciate the chance to be able to talk about PBIS. So one of the misrules I think is important to understand that PBIS is not, was not, is not George Sugai. Uh, George Sugai did not invent PBIS. Rob Horner and George Sugai did not invent the center. PB, uh, George, George Sugai did not invent the triangle. You know, what Rob and I and our team did, and I say that purposely with capital T-E-A-M, all three capitalized, all four word letters capitalized, is what the team did is develop this framework in a way that's responsive to schools' needs and kept student benefit as the focus. Mm -hmm. 
I think the success that I really appreciate is that I was able to be part of this larger community. The team as being one, the PBI Center team, but then the larger one of people like yourself and Don Chapman and others who become the implementers and have maintained contact with the PBIS community. That to me is a, is a success. I can go to Australia and see people there that are implementing with fidelity and it really is quite gratifying. And they teach me about what it looks like there. Uh, I can go to Japan and I can talk to people that are implementing there. And I, even though it's in a different language with a different set of values, I can still see the core features being implemented. Um, that to me is to see other people be successful is something that I personally find successful for the PVS team as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, I think the general success thing is that um, I think it's been helpful to me just in my kind of everyday life, if you will. It helped me make my decision about when to retire. It helped P the PBIS logic, if you will, help me make decisions about how to develop an IEP for my retirement life. Uh, it helped me kind of assess whether or not, you know, so forth and so on. I think it has given me a set of life tools, decision-making tools that kind of help me, as my friend Rob Horner always says, arrange my environment for success, mm -hmm. not only for myself, but for my family and my friends, yeah. you know, and so forth. Um, trying to be preventative, trying to be optimistic, trying to be database, trying to make decisions based on the best science, trying to stay healthy based on that science. All that stuff has been mm -hmm. probably a spinoff of what I've, I've done in the schools and vice versa. I think it's kind of gone both ways, but um, the last two years and 211 days of retirement have been very positively reinforcing. <laughs> And um, I think it's because of kind of my prior experiences and having interactions with my with people like yourself yeah, and others. Yeah. It's been pretty phenomenal. Yeah, well, you, I'm very grateful for that. Well, you have had uh, to say you have had a uh, an incredible career is an understatement. At listeners, you know this is the point where I normally mention uh, our guests' social media handles, how you can follow them, how you can stay in touch with them. But George is retired. Uh, and so there is no social media presence for that. So I had no social media even before <laughs> I retired. Yeah, yeah perfect. But so. I, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, uh, if, you know, if you do have questions, yeah. direct them towards Tom and Tom will get them to there me. There you go. Uh, you could, I actually still maintain my Yukon email address. Okay. So you can always contact me through Great. that. Great. Um, I'm sure Tom will, can post that. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm happy to give that out. We'll definitely put that. Um, uh, listeners, you will have that in the show notes for, uh, for for contacting with George. And I'd be happy to facilitate anything for folks as well. And George, I, I just have to say that offer is incredibly gracious. Uh, you have made that offer throughout the entire time I've known you. You were incredible to me back in the day in terms of Mike peppering you with questions and, and understanding. Um, I'm just grateful, you know, to you for for not just being here today, but the influence you've had on my career, still have on my career. I still hear you in my ear, even though I'm talking about assessment, I'm talking about grading. There are things that I experienced with you that you taught me that helped me help shape uh, who I am today as an educator. So I just want to thank you again for that. Uh, and certainly thank you for being here. And uh, I wish you a happy holidays with with for you and and your family as well. I appreciate that very much. And remember, there are certain uh, 
theoretical frameworks that would say that if you're hearing voices in your head, that's something going on there. But so be careful. We'll call this. Well, but this is a positive at the same one. Time, <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it's really easy to chat with you. You've done a really nice job with the implementation stuff. Um, I have total confidence in you handling any question that might be directed to me. So, you know, um, listeners, viewers, take advantage of, of Tom and his services. I hope the podcast has been helpful to you and please use it as you see fit. And um, as always, there's a disclaimer here saying good luck and I'll and see what happens. Right, right. Well, that's very gracious, George. I appreciate the endorsement and uh, certainly, again, appreciate your time today. All right. Take care of yourself, everybody. In Assessment Corner this week, rather than talk to you about a specific strategy, idea, or practice, or answer a question, I just want to talk to you for a moment about your assessment journey and remind you and encourage you to be patient with yourself. Assessment is a lifelong professional journey. It's not something we check off our master PD list and say, oh, we did assessment last year. Check. From the day we begin this career to the day we retire, assessment is a mandatory part of our professional existence because at the very least, each of us will be responsible for producing a report card or some type of summarization about student learning in some regular interval. Now, as I work with groups of teachers, entire school staffs, or even larger cohorts at events, there are always a few people who, at some point during the session, go to one of two places, or they go to both. First, those educators have a breakthrough or an epiphany that reveals where they need to grow professionally in their assessment practices, but that can immediately turn to angst about what the first part of their careers has looked like. They ask, infer, or even wonder internally, does that mean the first part of my career has been wrong? And it's important to remember that growth and change is not about pointing out how wrong people have been. Okay, it's about how we can align things going forward. I often remind people that I am now in my 31st year in education, but that I've been at this assessment work at a very intensive level for only 18 years. So if you do the math on that, that leaves 13 years, over a decade, the first 13 years of my career, where I was the opposite of everything I know and everything I stand for in assessment. Wherever you are in this assessment journey is fine. It has to be. You are where you are. And again, the work is not about discrediting your past. The work is about being more aligned and on point going forward as that what the future is, is the only thing we have control over. Now, the second place some go is feeling completely overwhelmed and believing they need to change everything by tomorrow. So there ends up being this intensity to their growth and development that feels more panicked than anything else. They try to overhaul their entire assessment system in a semester, and they feel less than if they don't or they can't make that happen. But both of these mindsets are a complete waste of energy. They really are. The goal is to get it right, not to be first. Yes, look, mistakes are going to happen. But as I've talked about a few times before, implementation mistakes, for the most part, are not going to be horrific errors. Most of the time, it's just a matter of, okay, that was good. Next time, I'll do it better. We want to get it right. So be patient with yourself. You can't do it all at once. So focus on quality change, not quantity. Start by doing a few things very well. Get really good at one or two aspects. Now, that doesn't mean we only focus on one or two aspects per school year, but it means those one or two aspects are where you put a disproportionate amount of your attention. 
Now, my experience has taught me that change to our assessment practices grows exponentially. At first, one or two aspects can feel like a heavy lift. Changing feedback practices or refining reassessment practices can feel daunting. But then there is a kind of momentum. So just sink into the now and allow those processes to unfold in due time. Let that happen. Again, not at a snail's pace, but not at a frantic pace either. But for example, the reason so many of us, you know, including myself, talk about how things might take three to five years is because you have to kind of think about the bigger picture and understand how things unfold, especially something like grading reform, right? There is a, a process that all teachers and likely schools will have to go through, right? Like maybe in your first year, it's a year of exploration where we're developing a new mindset about grading and reconciling the contrast between the old and the new. And then maybe the next year or sometime early in the year uh, in that first year, but maybe the next year, it's a year of implementation where, you know, some might've occurred the year prior, but this is now where individual practices like reassessment or homework or organizing grade books and things like that, that starts to happen. And then in the third year, we start to consolidate maybe by department or grade level or by school, and we come together as a faculty and, and align that. Now, that might take two years to do that. And then maybe in the fourth year or the fifth year, we start to see actual policy changes and external changes like new report cards. And, and maybe we go into the, that fifth or sixth year where we're trying to um, re refine and realize all of the desirable outcomes that we want. This takes time. And if there are any hiccups along the way, like, you know, I don't know, maybe something like a pandemic, then it all has to be reconsidered. It, it doesn't have to take that long, okay? It doesn't have to take three to five to six years. If you've got all on board and you have no resistance or debate, then you probably will make more exponential growth and it'll go more smoothly. And I often get this from folks, not often, I shouldn't say often, but I, but I get this frequently from people, which is, Tom, just tell us what to do next or tell us what we need to do. And I often say to them, listen, I can tell you what to do step by step, but I want to know that we aren't going to argue about each step along the way. You ask me to tell you, then I tell you, and then we debate every step. I, I, I don't really want to do that. Now, don't misunderstand that. I'm, I'm always up for a good debate. Don't get me wrong. I'm always up for a good discussion. All of that's fine. As I said, you know, I, I, I don't want to come out and tell people what to do because I want them to realize it. Like, it's not, it's not productive to debate these ideas. Tom, tell us what to do. And then I tell them. And then, like, we don't like that. So I shouldn't have told them in the first place. So I, I often don't just come out and tell people what to do in their grading reform or their, their assessment practices, especially larger groups. Because I like the idea of working through the mindset and having their specific context and situation or circumstances reveal what the next steps are. Right? It's easy to tell people what to do, but you have to understand the context and the nuances and some of the norms that have been established. Now, I recognize that in some small, medium, or large way, I might be guilty of contributing to some of this urgency or this panic about change. Right? Each week I come on this podcast and present a topic that you must do, and that is urgent to change. And then next week, I do it all over again. You must do this, and it's super urgent, and we got to get going. Remember, as you listen to Assessment Corner during this podcast, you're going to hear, of course, some reaffirmations. You'll also hear things that you know you need to get started with, and, and maybe there are other things that you file away for the future, so to speak. Just take it all in, 
let it marinate, and know that this is a career-long effort of implementation and refinement. None of this is about your professional competence or the degree to which you care about your students. I trust teachers, and I know that the decisions teachers make almost always come from a place of having the very best in mind for their students. Now, I might disagree with some of those decisions, and could some of those decisions be better or more effective? Sure, yeah, that's true, but that's what our professional growth is all about. So I know this doesn't apply to all of you listening right now, but if you are feeling a little overwhelmed with all that you think you have to do assessment-wise, I want you to do a few things. First of all, take a deep breath. Second of all, focus on the here and now. Just finish strong this week, okay? Enjoy your holiday and come back in January recharged to reinvigorate your long-term efforts. Be patient with yourself and be patient with your colleagues. As long as you're moving forward and growing at a reasonable pace, that is all anyone can ever ask of you professionally. All right, that's it for this week. And just a reminder that we will be off until January 10th. Please remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and YouTube. And you can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you are so inclined and you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and your colleagues. I really do appreciate it. Happy holidays, everyone.